speaking in Spanish. We got Pastor Vladimir speaking in English. We got Pastor Rolo that's going to try to preach today. So we're grateful to God for what he's doing in this church. Let me pray for us. Father, we're grateful for this time that you've given to us. Your word is authoritative, infallible, inerrant. And Lord, you've called us to submit to your word. And when we do, as Christians, as a body of believers, we give you glory and honor and praise. And when the church is holy, it's simply a reflection of that which is in heaven already. And Father, we ask you and beg you, be with us today. Still our hearts and our minds. Lord, help us not to be distracted by the things of this world, but help us, O God, by the aid of your Spirit and by your grace, O God, that you would speak to our hearts through the preaching of your word and that we would leave this place saying, God is king, and it was good to be in the house of the Lord. So be with us now, we pray in Christ. Amen. During the American Revolution, there was a man in a place called Ephrata, Pennsylvania. His name was Michael Whitman. And Michael Whitman was an evil man. He was a wicked man. And his whole purpose in life was to make the life of the local Baptist preacher to make his life a complete wreck in a miserable life. This Baptist preacher was the name, was the name Peter Miller. And so Whitman made this preacher's life miserable year after year after year. And then finally justice had arrived. Whitman was arrested for his crime. His crime during the American Revolution was treason. He was arrested. He was sentenced to die. And then the Baptist preacher, Peter Miller, heard about this arrest and heard about this death sentence. And Miller walked 70 miles he walked 70 miles all the way to Washington, General George Washington, and he asked the general for the life of this evil man, Michael Whitman. And General George Washington said, I cannot give you the life of your friend. Well, the Baptist preacher said, My friend? He's not my friend. He is the most bitter enemy and rival I've ever had in my life. And then the president, General George Washington, said this, You walked 70 miles to save the life of an enemy? That puts the matter in a whole different light. I'll grant you your pardon. And he did. And so Whitman, this evil man, went back home to Pennsylvania with Peter Miller, the local Baptist preacher, no longer as an enemy, but as a friend for life. And so when we look at this story and hear about this story, we all have enemies, do we not, at some level, at some point? And the main point of today's text is this, and it's in your bulletin, love your enemies because you have received God's grace. Love your enemies because you have received God's grace. And I don't normally put the verses in the main point, but you're going to see here in verse 27 and verse 35 
what writers call an inclusio. So if you look at verse 27, it says, love your enemies. That's at the beginning of this discourse. And at the end of this discourse in verse 35, it says, love your enemies. So those are the bookends. And when writers, biblical writers, put that language at the beginning, at the end of the discourse, that's the point of the story. That's the emphasis at hand. This type of love, to love your enemies, is not a regular love, but it is a radical love. And if you're a Christian, you're in the kingdom of God. And if you're in the kingdom of God, then you will speak and act and actually love in a way that's opposed to the world's ways. You're not going to love according to the world's standards. But you're going to love in a way that Jesus commands his disciples, which applies to us today. But what happens when somebody, maybe your relative, your cousin, your aunt, your uncle, your grandfather, your grandmother, a co-worker, your neighbor, hates you, curses you up one side and down the other, abuses you, or strikes you, I've heard of stories of neighbors going at it in the streets. Or a person steals from you, takes something that does not rightfully belong to them. What then? Are you still willing to love your enemy when that happens to you? This is not a text for your neighbor or the Christian in another row this morning. This message is for you. This message is for me. Are we willing to honor God as king even when we have enemies that hate us? The background to today's text is really the verses 20 through 26, which I preached last Sunday. And in that text, those who are blessed are those who are spiritually poor and their hope is in God alone. That's the background to our text today. But I want to bring your attention to verse 22. Verse 22 drove last week's sermon, but verse 22 drives this week's sermon. Because why? It's the same discourse. We're just touching a different topic. Verse 22. And verse 22 says this. Verse 22. Blessed are you when people hate you, And when they exclude you and revile you and spurn your name as evil on the account of the Son of Man. So Jesus prepares his disciples for gospel ministry that persecution is going to come, trouble is going to come their way. And it's not because of anything else, but it's simply because of Christ. That they are committed to the Lord Jesus Christ. And Jesus uses the the title of the Son of Man. Again, I want to remind us, Jesus is talking to specifically his disciples in this mixed crowd, and he's preparing them for what will happen. And there's two sub-points in today's sermon, and you'll see this in your outline. Number one, radical love declared, verses 27 to 31. And number two, radical love explained, in verse 32 to 36. I'm going to spend most of the time in today's sermon in the first point, so bear with me. But in verse 27, read with me. It says, But I say to you who hear, 
Love your enemies. Do good to those who hate you. Bless those who curse you. Pray for those who abuse you. To one who strikes you on the cheek, offer the other also. And from one who takes away your cloak, do not withhold your tunic either. Give to everyone who begs from you. And from one who takes away your goods, do not demand them back. And as you wish that others would do to you, do so to them. The word love in this text is not the, the love of eros. It's not a sexual type of love. It is not the love of phileo, a brotherly love. It's not the love of natural affection. But this word love is the word agapao, where we get the word agape. And this agape type love is a loving concern. It's a great affection for another person based on sincere appreciation. It's a concern for the other person's well-being and benefit. One reformer says it like this, it's a deliberate love rooted in the will, a love by choice. Agape love is deep, continuous, growing, and ever-renewing activity of the will, superintended by the Holy Spirit. Did you hear that, dear brothers and sisters? This is not the world's type of love. This is completely opposite of the world's type of love. This is deliberate. This is rooted in your will and in my will. It's a decision that we have made, that we are pre-committed to the benefit of another person. It's that type of love which is deep, continuous, growing, only by the aid of the Holy Spirit. You, we cannot love other people the way that the Bible commands us in our own strength. This is a supernatural love. This is a radical love. This must happen by God's grace when God changes our hearts. So to love in this way in our own strength is futile and foolishness and folly. This type of love is biblical. This type of love is pre-committed. This type of love is proactive. This type of love is not a feeling but a committed action. That's the type of love that the Bible talks about. It is a committed action for the benefit of another person. So agape love says this, I will love this person because by God's grace, I choose to love this person. That does not mean and that does not guarantee that the other person is not going to hurt you in some way either by words or by physical actions. I choose to love this person in spite of this person. That's what this type of love is. And in our text today, this is really filled with a bunch of commands, mostly positive commands. And this is the first of those commands, to love your enemies. We're not talking about national enemies. We're not talking about America has a national enemy in China, in Russia, in North Korea. We're not talking about those type of enemies. The type of enemy that we're talking about today is personal enemies. Our personal enemies. Again, why would that happen to us? Verse 22 drives this sermon. It's on the account of the Son of Man. 
Once you say to the world, to your family, to your colleagues, to your co-workers, I am a disciple of Jesus Christ, persecution is going to come. I would argue it's already here. I would argue it's been here for years. We just stick our heads in the sand like the ostrich and avoid it at all costs. So in context, we're addressing enemies of the cross of Jesus. Those who are against the gospel of Jesus, against the gospel of grace. And when we share this gospel message of grace, it's not going to be a surprise to us that many will reject this message of hope. God's grace, God's hope in Christ. They're going to reject it. That's what spiritually dead people do. They reject in their spiritual deadness that which is good, right, and proper. So disciples of Jesus, what are they to do when hostility and aggression comes upon them? They are to react, and we are to react in an unprecedented way. Not according to the world's standards, but according to God's standards. We're to love our enemies in the face of hostility and aggression. Jesus goes on to say we're to do good to the haters. We're to, good, we're to do good to the haters. Do good to those who hate you. And what's happening is when we actually think about this verse, there's a certain tension that rises up within our hearts. To do good to those who hate us? That makes no sense. In one respect, Proverbs 25, 21 says this, If your enemy is hungry, give him bread to eat. If your enemy is thirsty, give him water to drink. Why? For you will heap burning coals on his head, and the Lord will reward you. That's how we're to react in the face of aggression and hostility. Is we're to do good to our enemy. Can you imagine a person who intensely hates you or intensely dislikes you? And Jesus, our King and Savior, says, we are all to do good to them. Is that natural? If you're in the flesh, it's unnatural. That's why that tension rises up within our own hearts. And when we feel hurt by something that someone else said, or we feel disrespected by something that someone had said to us, many times we react in anger, unrighteous anger. Why? Because they offended me. They offended you. They didn't necessarily offend God. It wasn't necessarily sin. But because they said a slight word and a slight statement, we're all of a sudden triggered. We have unrighteous anger. Many times we think or act like pagans. You hurt me, I'm going to hurt you. And then we come here on Sunday and say, Praise the Lord Almighty. Doesn't that sound hypocritical? Isn't that a contradiction? Or maybe we're sophisticated. We're passive-aggressive. Somebody hurts us and disrespects us. And we say, okay, brother, sister, friend, neighbor, no problem. 
And then we leave the situation and we're scheming and devising ways that we can get this person back. That's the classical definition of passive-aggressive. How can I get this person back on social media? How can I cause them the most hurt and pain at their work or within their families? You know, some of us, it'd be better for maybe most of us, if not all of us, to stay off social media if you're not going to use it for gospel purposes. You know that's true. You know that's true. It would be better for most of us to stay off social media if you're not going to use it for gospel purposes. But we're sophisticated. We want personal justice on our own terms. We want to make things right our own ways. But the scales of justice are pre-weighted into our own favor. We become the judge, jury, and executioner. In the Old Testament, there was a fair and equitable system for justice. This justice system that God instituted, by the way, in the Old Testament was to give a certain punishment for a certain crime. And it, the, the punishment was not to be more or excessive because the crime didn't warrant it. Scholars call this the lex talionis, which is known as the law of retaliation. And we know this as Christians who read the Old Testament. We know this as this, an eye for an eye, a tooth for a tooth, a hand for a hand, a life for a life, a stripe for a stripe. That's how we understand the Old Testament system of justice. But Jesus says we're to do good to those who hate us. Normally, when people hate us, our first reaction is to slander their reputation. Again, hence going back to social media. Or we avoid the situation and we walk away. We simply don't want to deal with the situation at all. But Jesus doesn't say, hey, stop it. Jesus doesn't say, hey, be neutral. Jesus doesn't say, just walk away. Jesus actually says, do good. Do something positive for the benefit of another person. Neutrality is a myth, by the way. I hope we understand that. All of us come to this room or go to our work, our occupation, with some sort of inclination, predisposition, or presupposition. We're already judging people before they even open their mouths. There's no such thing as neutrality. Neutrality is a myth. So Jesus says, bless those who curse you. A person who curses, normally in the biblical context, is a person would call upon their deity or they would call upon their God and that they would beg their God to cause some sort of calamity in the life of the person that we hate. Is known as cursing. The one who curses is the one who makes a statement in which they hope, which results in injury or harm to this person because why they have hurt you, caused you harm. Can you imagine a person whose whole goal in life is to make your life, our lives, miserable? 
like this evil man Whitman during the American Revolution. And in times like this, we're tempted to pray imprecatory psalms. I think we have been around long enough to know what imprecatory psalms are. Imprecatory psalms is when you read the psalms and there's language in the psalms that says, God, I hate this person, basically. Please take their lives. Please judge them. Please deal with them. So, for example, Psalm 59, verse 12, talks, For the sin of their mouths, the words of their lips, let them be trapped in their pride, for the cursing and lies they utter. So the psalmist hates what's coming out of the mouth or the mouths of these people. And here it is. Consume them in wrath. Consume them till they are no more. You know, we're no different than the psalmist many times. When people hurt us and offend us and hate us, what do we want to do? In our own Christian, sophisticated way, God, take their lives. Let them die in their sin. Now, we don't say that. We're too Christian for that. But the attitude of our hearts is still the same. We want them to be judged. And Jesus calls his disciples to what? Not curse, but bless. Bless those who curse. Can you imagine we're asking God to bestow divine favor upon those who curse us? That's just another way of saying do good to the haters. Lord, they're hurting me in some fashion. Do good to them, Lord. This is completely unnatural in many senses, on many levels. Then Jesus says in another command, pray for those who abuse you. I think the better translated word is mistreat you. Pray for those who mistreat you. Jesus is saying that you're to pray for them and what's implied is in the positive sense for those who mistreat you. I want us to understand one thing here is that we are not praying, per se, that God would stop this person from mistreating us, even though that would be a great and wonderful blessing. But that's not our primary goal as Christians. The reason many times that people hate us and abuse us or mistreat us is because they're not Christians. And so the goal is not, Lord, have them stop, but the, the, the real goal is, Lord, change their hearts. If it were not for the grace of God, there go I. That would be me. That would be us if it were not for God's grace. But Lord, you've changed my heart. I went from hating people to loving people because you love me and you love us. And therefore, oh God, I pray to you and I beg you, oh God, change this person's heart who's mistreating me. You know what I've noticed in the Christian life? Is that when that happens to us and we pray for their salvation, those who mistreat us, it is extremely difficult to be mad, angry, and bitter towards them. It's very difficult. 
Why? Because in those times when we pray for the salvation of our enemies, we are saying to ourselves, God, you changed me. You changed me. You changed me. And I have nothing but pity for them. That's what we're doing. And we praise God when he hears our prayers and when he answers those prayers. And he changes, when he changes hearts, hearts are forever changed. How do I know that? Because the Bible says it, number one. But number two, you're in this room. So how are we to react when we have physical hostility towards us? Do we say life for life, hand for hand, tooth for tooth? No. Verse 29 gives us the answer. The one who strikes you on the cheek, offer the other one also. Offer the other cheek also. This can only mean one of two possibilities. One, this is literal in terms of a physical strike, like a slap or a punch, maybe with a weapon. That's a physical, tangible thing. Or it can mean this. It's a picture of being rejected. It's a picture of public rejection, like when somebody is expelled from a synagogue. And I said this last week, for a Jew to be expelled from a synagogue, it's not simply a religious event, it is their whole identity. It's their community. So it's possible that Jesus is referring to both, a literal strike or public rejection. But I want us to understand there is a great difference, a major difference, between physically suffering for the name of Christ versus a serial killer, murderer, rapist breaking into your house and doing your family harm. I want to make that distinction. You are allowed, men, to protect your spouse and your kids. God takes vows seriously, does he not? You made a vow before God on your wedding day to protect your wife and your children and your family. Hold true to your vow. So there's a difference between suffering physically for Christ versus a criminal breaking into your home. I want to make that distinction clear. So when it comes to this part in the verse where it says, offer the other one also or offer the other cheek also, many times there's a misunderstanding to that verse. And I want to remind us of the context. Remember, Jesus went up on the mountain. He prayed all night. In the morning, he selected his apostles, New Testament leaders of the church. And then he, Jesus reminds them that there's going to be persecution because they're committed or pre-committed to Christ. And then Jesus says in the verses earlier, to love your enemies. Therefore, when we take this context and we look at offer the other one also, means that there's always going to be a risk of rejection. 
There's always going to be a risk of rejection when you're reaching out to unbelievers. Yes, there's a physical aspect to that, but I believe there's something more to that. When we offer the message of God's grace and God's hope in the Lord Jesus Christ, the command is this, that even though we're rejected for Christ, we are to continually to reach out, continually reach out, continually reach out, continually reach out to those who cause us harm. That's why Jesus says, they strike you on one cheek, offer them the other cheek. There's risk involved in living for Christ. There's risk involved in sharing the message of Jesus. So, is that us? Have we forgotten that? That there is a risk involved in following Jesus. I want us to be reminded that many things in this world will pull you away from that reality and that truth and that fact. But Christ gave up the glories of heaven for your and mine salvation. It is worth it. It is worth it. This same idea of risking it all applies in verse 29 when it says, And the one who takes away your cloak, do not withhold your tunic either. The cloak is the outer garment. So I would just say for illustration purposes, my suit jacket is the cloak. But the tunic is the inner part of the garment. And if Jesus' disciples are to constantly be in an environment where there's hostility towards them, and they're continually reaching out to those who are lost in their sin, then what this means is there's always going to be a risk. There's always going to be a risk. If they take your cloak, give them your tunic. It's not a matter of walking up to an unbeliever and saying, Hi, I'm Rola, I'm a Christian. Would you like my jacket in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ? That has nothing to do with the context. It has nothing to do with the context. What this means is the one who takes away your cloak and your tunic, there's going to be a risk. Be prepared to sacrifice. That's the point. Be prepared to sacrifice. And as a matter of fact, if you think that radical love is simply words, it's much more than that. Actually, radical love, the way that the Bible describes, is going to require your pocketbook. It's going to require your wallet. It's going to require Apple Pay. Look at verse 30. Give to everyone who begs from you, and from one who takes away your goods, do not demand them back. Jesus is not referring to the lazy person. Jesus is not referring to the person who constantly takes advantage of people's kindness and finances. He's not talking about that. Jesus is referring to the person who is in desperate, legitimate, genuine financial need. That's the person that Jesus is referring to. So, the person who begs for financial help. They're saying that I don't have my own financial resources. Please help me. And as Christians, we have an obligation to help them. We have an obligation to help them. You know, I would just say for the church family, 
you know, pray for our deacons. They do a wonderful job, Brother Doug, Brother Marty. They do a wonderful job of helping our church family with physical needs. Thank you, brother. It's not an easy job because they have to meet with people who make financial requests. There's a process in our church where they have to be interviewed. They have to be honest with our deacons. The deacons have to talk and pray and agree. And then they help. So, pray for them. Pray for the church that we would have this attitude of sacrificial giving to those who are in desperate, genuine need. As Christians, we're to be sacrificial. I think one of the challenges for Christians today is that we don't really like to give financially many times. I'm grateful for this church. We give. But if we're to be honest, aren't there times where we give and we don't have a joyful heart? We give because it's the traditional thing to do. It's the evangelical thing to do. And you know, and Pastor Ed said this once in his sermon, that when we give, it's not a traditional thing. When we give financially, it's an act of worship. We are saying, God, take my sacrifice, which is whether you want to call it a tithe or offering, that's up to you. But Lord, take this gift and use it for your glory. And I do so out of a joyful heart because why? I know what I deserve. I deserve something far worse. I deserve hell and condemnation, judgment for my sin. But yet you are gracious to me. You are kind to me. You are faithful and merciful to me. Additionally, Jesus says, and the one who takes away your possessions, we're talking about material possessions, do not demand their return. In obedience to Jesus, we need to be willing to sacrifice all and give away our material possessions if the circumstance warrants. We've got to be willing to give up our personal possessions for the glory of Christ. I mean, I hope we understand that the things that we own today are not things that we're going to own 50 years from now, 100 years from now. As the wise preacher from the land that flows from, with milk and honey, that's the state of Texas, by the way, he would always say, the founder of this church would say, somebody else is going to drive your car in a few years. Somebody else is going to live in your home in a few years. Somebody else is going to own your inheritance or finances in a few years. It's just a matter of time. So we need to be willing to give up what we need to give up for the glory of Christ. So what does this imply? That Christians were not to love the world or the things of the world and were not to love money. We're not to love money. Money, again, is not the root of all evil. It's the love of money. The love of money. Let me ask you this, dear family. I know that you're hard workers, very hard workers, gracious, kind, and giving. But how much work is enough? Do you have to work 50 hours, 60 hours? Do you have to work 80 hours? Do you have to work overtime? Like, how much money is enough where you have some sort of relative peace in your heart that now I can go serve the Lord. Now I can go serve my spouse. 
Now I can go serve my children and my family. Like, what, ha- what amount of money do you have to have in your pocket in order to serve Christ faithfully? Here's the biblical answer. None. None. So as Christians, we're to hold on to these material possessions lightly. And in verse 31, here's the epitome of the golden rule. We understand the golden rule. Look at verse 31. And as you wish that others would do to you, do so to them. Do so to them. In other words, treat others the way that you want to be treated. If you want others to be kind to you, guess what? You need to be kind to others. If you want people to be loving to you, guess what? You need to be loving towards others. If you want people to be gracious to you, you need to be gracious with others. If you want to have Christian friends, guess what? You got to be friendly. You know, I had an individual that came up to me several years ago and complained, and he said this, Pastor Rolo, you know, this is the most unfriendly church I've ever met. And I said, please explain what you're talking about. He said, you know, I came here on a Sunday worship service, and I said hi to someone, and this person never said hi back. And I said, how many times did you do that? It was like once or twice. And so they never said hi back to you. Yes. So now you've come to the conclusion that this is not a friendly church. Yes. I, I want to... I want to take my wife's tweezers and pull out the very last hair that's on my head. (laughs) That doesn't make sense to a logical person. If you're going to be friendly, then be friendly. If you want people to be friendly to you, then you need to be friendly. And you can't just try it once or twice and expect a great outcome. Building relationships, whether they're Christian or not, requires time. And so I hear things like, we're just not friendly. If you've been around for a while, you know that's not true. That's not true. But we need to be gracious towards one another. We need to be friendly towards one another. We need to be patient with one another. We need to be loving towards one another. It takes time to build good relationships anywhere in the world. So we need to be praying that the Lord would help us. So, the golden rule is a two-way street, by the way. It's not one way. The golden rule is a two-way street. Point number two. Radical love explains, starting in verse 32. And in verse 32 to 34 specifically, there's... There's a dichotomy or there's a comparison between the world's standard of love and God's standard of love. And it would behoove us right now to pay attention to this text. Jesus presents three scenarios or three questions to get his disciples to think introspectively. Verse 32 says this, If you love those who love you, what benefit is that to you? For even sinners love those who love them. And if you do good to those who do good to you, what benefit is that to you? For even sinners do the same. And if you lend to those from whom you expect to receive, what credit is that to you? Even sinners lend to sinners to get back 
the same amount. So in this first scenario, in verse 32, it's really a scenario about loving yourself. That if you do such and such, what you're really doing is you love yourself. And if the disciples of Christ show love to other people who automatically show love back to them, Jesus says, what's the credit to you? What's the benefit to you? This is simply a way of loving yourself. This is a worldly way, not a biblical way. This is not radical love. It requires no work on your part. It requires no sacrifice on your part. It requires no commitment on your part. Same thing with scenario number two in verse 33. All you're really doing is doing good to yourself. If the disciples of Christ do good works and good deeds to others who do good works and good deeds to them, what credit is that to you? It requires no sacrifice again on your part. It requires no commitment on your part. This is a way of doing good unto yourself, a worldly love, not a radical love. And the same thing for scenario number three in verse 34. When you lend, you're not just lending to the other person. Really, you're lending to yourself. Because if you financially lend, that's the idea there. That's the emphasis is financial giving, financial lending. To those who can guarantee a payment back to you, what kind of credit is that to you? It doesn't require any sacrifice on your part again. No real effort on your part again. You're lending really to yourself, which is a worldly love, not a radical love. But look what the end of verses 32, 33, and 34 say. 32 says this at the end. For even sinners love those who love them. The end of verse 33, for even sinners do the same. The end of verse 34, even sinners lend to sinners to get back what? The same amount. It's extremely easy for Christians to be in cliques or groups and be in certain contexts where we receive the, the most amount of benefit, where we receive the most amount of blessing. It's easy to do that. But Jesus' point is this. His disciples are to go way beyond all of that. They're to go way beyond the world's standard of interpersonal relationships. The world, the way that they treat each other is simply for selfish personal gain. That's how the world operates. Jesus says, no, 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 you're my disciples. You're not to act like that. You're not to react like that. That's not how you are to live for Christ. There is to be selfless, sacrificial service for the benefit of others at great personal expense. That's the love of the Bible. That's radical love. Don't we love those who can give us something back? Maybe it's not money, but maybe it's good job. Good job at work. You deserve that promotion. Maybe it's not money, but it's like you're the best father in the world. Or you're the best mother in the world. We want the applause of men. We love those who can give us a compliment back. We love those who can help us out 
in some sort of future need. But the radical love that Jesus declares and explains focuses on a kingdom ethic, a new type of living. And what is that based on? The gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ. The gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ is the foundation of this kingdom ethic. How we are to live. How are we to react? You know, most of us, I would say, in this congregation are citizens of the United States of America. Either we were born here or we immigrated here, one of the two. We're citizens of America, but I want to remind us we're citizens of a greater nation. We're citizens of the kingdom of God. We are citizens of the kingdom of heaven. That is our primary citizenship. And we're to act and react properly. So if we focus simply on superficial ways and superficial love, then what's going to end up happening is that we're going to love just like the world loves. It's not going to be a sacrificial, selfless type of love. We're going to love exactly the way the world loves if we simply focus on superficial friendships and the ways of the world. So do you love those who love you? Do you do good to those who do good to you? Do you give financially because you know that when you give 100 bucks, you're going to get your 100 bucks back? Jesus says sinners do that for sinners. What's so special about that? But do we have an ultimate example of radical love? And the Bible's absolutely clear, yes. His name is Jesus Christ. Is not Jesus the one who loved us while we were still sinners? Romans 5, verse 10 says this, For if, while we were enemies, we were reconciled to God by the death of his Son, much more, now that we are reconciled, shall we be saved by his life. Did you hear that? While we were enemies. While we were enemies. We were reconciled to God by a special sacrifice, by the sacrifice of his son, the Lord Jesus Christ. I mean, when we think about that, that's mind-blowing. That Jesus would not die, per se, for friends, but he would die for rebels and enemies. Weren't we the enemies of the cross at one point prior to our conversion? Weren't we enemies of the cross? Let's be honest with ourselves. The way that we lived prior to our conversion, we were all enemies of the cross at that point. Weren't we the ones who hated Christ prior to regeneration, prior to salvation? Weren't we the ones that hated Christ? Yet in God's love, God's love was incarnate, left heaven, and came to earth, and lived and died for you and for me in the person of the Lord Jesus Christ. God's love came to us. Jesus, stripped of his cloak and tunic. You remember John chapter 19? After he was stripped, the Roman soldiers started to cast lots because they wanted to divide up his garments and pass it amongst themselves. Jesus was stripped. 
That is a level of embarrassment and sadness and destitution. Jesus is the one who left the glories of heaven for you and for me. He provided salvation through himself. And what does Jesus say in Matthew 8, verse 20? Foxes have holes. Birds of the air have nests. But the Son of Man, the Son of Man, has nowhere to lay his head. The King of glory. The King of kings. The Lord of lords. The Savior who's actually saved. The King who rules right now. He gave up the glories of heaven and he says, I have no place to lay my head. In our natural, unsaved, unregenerate state, we hated God. We were cursed. We were condemned. We were on our way to hell, and rightfully so. Yet Christ stepped in, and he was cursed so that we would be blessed. He was struck. He was struck so that we would be free. We received a great salvation because we have a great Savior. There's no one like our Savior, Jesus. He did good to us when we hated Him. He sacrificed Himself for our good. Jesus is the ultimate example of radical love. And here's the motivation that we see for this radical love in verse 35. Read, for, read with me. But love your enemies and do good and lend, expecting nothing in return, and your reward will be great, and you'll be sons of the Most High, for he is kind to the ungrateful and the evil. Be merciful, even as your Father is merciful. Again, Jesus commands his disciples, love your enemies, do good to them, lend and expect nothing in return. Again, this is being selfless, this is being sacrificial, for another's benefit. In reality, this is the gospel being lived out. And the result of living like this, this type of radical love, ends up with a reward. Loving others in this way is because God has changed our hearts. But I also want us to understand that this type of radical type of living is for Christians who've been born again. So you may be saying, I've never loved anybody like this before, Rolo. I don't want to love anybody like this, Rolo. Maybe it's because God has never changed your heart. And then there may be others of us who say, Rolo, I've loved people like this, but it comes and goes, it ebbs and flows, it's 50-50. Some days I want to love people, other days I don't. That's a good sign of life, by the way. That's a good sign of life. Praise God. Praise God for that. That there's a desire to love as Christ called us to love. So Jesus is talking to his disciples. Those who've been recipients of his great grace, God's grace. And he says to expect nothing in return. Can you give and not expect it back? I think many times we have secret logs in our phone where we're 
keeping receipts and we're keeping transactions and we're keeping notes of people who owe us. You know what we owe, right? Matthew Henry says it like this in regards to expecting nothing in return. Quote, whatever we lose in this world will be made up to us in the other world, unspeakable to our advantage. What's Matthew Henry saying? He says, don't focus on this world. God will make things right one day, and you'll have what God wants you to have in the life to come. It will be made right. So our reward, our reward, or the Christian's reward is God himself. God himself. Revelation 21.7 says this, The one who conquers will have this heritage, and I will be his God, and he will be my son. That's a major theme that runs through the Bible. I will be their God, and they will be my people. And the reward for the Christian is God himself. They will be sons and daughters, which means they're part of the family. And if you're part of the family, you have a different relationship with God. If you're not part of the family, then you don't have a relationship with God. And so we are recipients of God's amazing grace. God's amazing grace. And he goes on to say this, God is kind and gracious to those who are unthankful, ungrateful, to those who are immoral, wicked, and evil. God is kind and gracious to them. You know, that would be us today if God was not gracious to us. There came a point in time where God the Holy Spirit convicted you and I of our sin removed the scales off our eyes, and we could see the beauty and the glory and the majesty of the Lord Jesus Christ. And with a changed heart and brand new spiritual eyes, we said, Jesus is mine, and I belong to Jesus, all by God's grace. Don't think you change your own heart. You can't. God must change your heart, and we praise God for changing our hearts. And here's the final command and motivation. Be merciful even as your father is merciful. So he doesn't say, be merciful. Good luck. I hope you get there. No, he gives them the perfect example. God the Father himself. He says, be merciful as your father is merciful. That's a beautiful verse, by the way. It doesn't say our Father was merciful. It doesn't say our Father will be merciful. It says our Father, present tense, is merciful. He's merciful right now. He tells his disciples, be compassionate because God is merciful to you. We were the ones who were wicked and evil. We were the ones who were ungrateful, unthankful, and God caused us to be recipients of his wonderful grace and bounty. So we're to be compassionate because our Father is compassionate. And so you may ask yourself, how can I actually do this? How can I apply this? 
remember what Christ has done for you. Constantly remind yourself of the good news of Jesus Christ. God loves his people, and he's kind and merciful. Many of you are probably familiar with the name William Tyndale. During the Protestant Reformation, William Tyndale was a scholar and a linguist. He translated the Bible into English. And he says this about Christian love. Wherever you see need, to the utmost of your power, there open your heart and be merciful. If you are merciful, God has bound himself to be merciful to you again. We need to be merciful. Because why? God has been merciful to us, has he not? He's been faithful to you, has he not? He's loving to you, is he not? Yes. So the reason that we're called to love our enemies is because God loved us. He gave us Christ. God is kind and faithful and merciful. Don't forget that, dear Christian. The reason we're not merciful to others is we've forgotten how God has been merciful to us. And the reason we're called to love our enemies and the reason we're to do good and to bless and to pray and to give to those in need is because God Most High is kind to sinners such as us. That applies to us. Please don't think for a minute, my family member needs to hear this. My neighbor needs to hear this. My kids need to hear You need to hear this. I need to hear this. Let's be honest before the Lord. We need God's help in order to do this. So sermon in a sentence. We are called to love and be merciful to others because we have received God's grace in Jesus Christ. And all of God's people said, Amen. Amen. Let's pray. Father, please forgive us again and again because of our Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. We're grateful that your mercies are fresh and new each and every day. Thank you for being merciful to us, O God. Where at one point we were the ones who were ungrateful, unthankful, immoral, and wicked and evil. Thank you, O God, for your grace to us in the Lord Jesus Christ. Lord, we pray for those who are here that don't know you, O God. Would you change their hearts forever? Cause them to see their sin and cause them to turn from their sin and to turn to the one who bled and died for sinners, the Lord Jesus. For those of us who know you, O God, help us to love as you've called us to love. Help us to do good even when our flesh screams and cries for judgment. O God, help us to be mindful of all that you've done for us in Christ. And we love you and we bless you. In Christ we pray. Amen.